Amen. Go ahead and take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ruth. If you need a copy of God's Word, Larry's got some. He'll bring you one. Just put your hand in the air. He'd love to bring you one. No takers. All right. The book of Ruth this morning. Ruth is the eighth book in the Bible. We've been here for three weeks now. This is our fourth week in this, in this book, and it's about to get really good, guys. I'm super excited. But, yeah. Oh, yeah. Look at chapter two. We're going to go to chapter two this morning. Ruth chapter two. Um, I can read the whole chapter for the sake of time. But let's read through verse 16 this morning. Ruth chapter 2, 1 through 16. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. She said to her, Go, my daughter. And so she set out and went and, and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was in the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, Lord, be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant was in charge of the reapers, answered, She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and now has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink that the young, man have, the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and passed to her and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some, of, uh, pull out fro some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Now this morning we're only going to talk about maybe one thing in this text because of time constraints. Um, and we're really not going to get much past verse 1, um, which, awesome, verse 1 is excellent. We're, we're, but we're gonna, there's a lot here. And so what we wanted to do is begin to sort of construct an idea of where, uh, where the author of this book is going, especially when we get to chapter 2. Because chapter 2 kind of sets up this second act for us. In the first act, right, we see that Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem of Judah. But before that, Naomi loses everything. She loses her, uh, her husband. She loses her two sons. 
she had lost her people and had been become a foreigner and a sojourner in a, in a different land, in the land of Moab. And she loses all of these things. And then in the middle of that chapter, she comes back. She's coming back to Bethlehem and Judah. And on the way back, she is, she is followed by her two daughters-in-law, uh, by Orpah and Ruth. And in those moments, Naomi calls Orpah and Ruth to count the cost of following her back, saying, there is no guarantee in this life. If you follow me back to Bethlehem and Judah, there is no guarantee in this life that you will be remarried, that you will have children. There are no guarantees for you. And Orpah turns back at that moment, but Naomi continues. And Ruth tells Naomi that she will go where she goes, live where she lives, take Naomi's people as her people, and Naomi's God is her God. And so the first act ends with Ruth and Naomi getting back to Bethlehem. And the, the people in that region, in that town, they were stirred up. They were stirred up. One, because Naomi returned and she was empty. She had lost her husband. She had lost her sons. And now she was returning with a Moabite woman. But, but at the same time, the people were stirred up because they saw that God was at work. They saw this Moabite woman, a foreigner, who was converted and now had taken their God as, as her God. And so they probably asked the question, could God be moving amongst his people? And the answer is absolutely yes when we get to chapter 2. We get to chapter 2, we see, yes, God is working amongst his people. And so again, just one idea that we want to break off this morning. But as we get to chapter 2 and see what this chapter begins to unpack for us, I just want to consider one thing before we get there. And that Ruth, again, we've talked about this the first three weeks, really kind of on and off. But that Ruth counts the cost, and so then we are called to count the cost also. Just as Jesus calls us to count the cost in the New Testament. Like he calls the rich young man to count the cost when the rich young man comes to him and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says to him, uh, Follow the commands. Here are the commands. And he gives him the second, half of the, the, the second half of the Ten Commandments. And the man says to him, I've done all of those. What, what else do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns to him and says, sell all that you have and come and follow me. And the man turns around and walks away sorrowful because he had great possessions. That's what counting the cost is. What is this going to cost me to move forward? And so we see Ruth counting the cost. Orpah turns back. Ruth follows. Counts the cost of what it means to follow Naomi back to Bethlehem. And this text that's read this morning begins to show the incredible benefit that Ruth received in following Naomi, but it came in a way, out at least out of the gate, in a very different way than maybe she had expected. I think, I think we as people are, are often blinded by the moment. I think we see what's kind of going on around us. I was going to call this recency bias. The things that are happening around us that are, are most immediate. What is happening immediately in my life? And most of the time... My entire world is colored by the last, like, 10 minutes and then what's going on right now. Most of the time, I view the world through a lens of, of the last 10 minutes. Let me give you an example. Basketball fans, this will be good for you. I know the, many of you aren't basketball fans, but I'm going to go there anyway because it's just the easiest thing. If you watch, uh, like, sports uh, websites and, like, talk shows and things like that, which, I mean, are, are absolutely absurd 90% of the time. But most of the time now, they're asking the question, if you're a basketball fan, if you're an NBA fan, they're asking the question, is LeBron the GOAT? And I'm saying that 
and I'm speaking English, GOAT means greatest of all time, right? Is he the greatest of all time? LeBron James, is he the greatest of all time? This comes up every single day almost in like these sports talk show circles. Uh, and so we ask this question, is he the greatest? But, but a lot of people will argue that he is, but I would argue they're succumbing to recency bias. Because if, if you go back 20 years, you have a man by the name of Michael Jordan. Who, yeah, you see, you're nodding. You know what I'm talking about. It, it passes the eye test statistically better, like, across. And so they, they look and they say, man, this guy is really dominating right now in the NBA. And they think to themselves, oh, he must be the greatest of all time. But that doesn't take into account Michael Jordan. It doesn't take into account Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. It doesn't take into account Wilt Chamberlain. We can go on and on. It doesn't take into account any of those things. But, but right now, hey, yeah, I don't know what you said, but. Larry Bird. Larry Bird, sure, yeah. We can talk later about that. Um, but the reality is, like, those guys were dominant in their generations, and those people who watched the NBA in those generations said, this guy's the greatest of all time. No one will ever come close to touching this guy. Statistically, the eye test, whatever you want to say. And so anybody who says LeBron is, I'm going to go on, I'm going to live here. Anybody who says LeBron is definitively the GOAT is suffering from recency bias. They are blinded by the moment, and we are often also in our lives blinded by the moment. But as Christians, as those who have counted the cost and are following Jesus, we're not suffering from recency bias. We should be suffering from a future-oriented bias. What is coming? What is the hope that is laid out before us? Where are we putting our trust? Where are we putting our hope? So we've talked about the difficulty of counting the cost of following Jesus. But I want to ask this question. I want to ask this question. Should, should we really think it's difficult? Should, should we really think that it's, it's difficult? For those who truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth to die for sinners like you and me, should it really be difficult to count the cost of following the God-man, Jesus Christ? I mean, the answer to that is yes and no. Y yes and no. Is the answer yes and no? Yes, both. From the perspective that we are immediate, in-the-moment, self-absorbed people in sinful flesh, yes, it is difficult. And it will be difficult. But we're called to put that all to death, right? We're called to put everything that gets in our way and hinders us from chasing after Jesus. We're called to put that to death. And the power of the Spirit of Christ that dwells inside of us, we can, as God's people, follow Him and put to death our sinful flesh. And we're actively pursuing putting to death the flesh. We will be less susceptible to be blinded by the moment. And the flesh is what keeps us from seeing that eternity properly and puts us in the posture of someone who has recency bias instead of someone who has an eternal bias. How can we possibly be blinded by temporary things, by money or material or self-centered pursuits when everything, when all things... Scripture tells us when all things are offered to us in Christ, not earthly stuff, this is a small-scale, shadowy rendering of what's to come, but all things for all eternity in the abundant life that is promised us in Christ Jesus when he returns or calls us home. C.S. Lewis obviously says it better than I can. He says this in his book, The Weight of Glory. Towards the end of this quote, I'll just read the second half. He says, like ignorant children 
who want to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by, meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We look at the mud pies and say, this is what it is. But a holiday at the sea, a vacation at the beach is offered to us. And the one who counts the cost and follows Jesus over the course of time will find that what was lost is so small, so insignificant, so without consequence compared to following Jesus. And at the front end, the cost seems high. I have to give that up. I have to give up my ambitions, my wealth. I have to give up whatever, you name it. But as you grow in depth of following Jesus by crucifying the flesh and its desires, you will find that it was nothing. Jesus is infinitely better than that thing, than anything. If you feel like there is something better than Jesus, it's because you haven't either counted the cost or because your flesh has been given space to grow and needs to be killed and needs to be taken out to pasture. So I want to make sure that we have the correct picture here. We ask the question, what does it cost me? And the cost is high. But once you're on the path, it diminishes, it dwindles. We see that the cost is not as great as what's promised to us in Christ Jesus. So again, we count the cost the way that uh, Ruth counts the cost when Naomi uh, calls her to, when Naomi takes, or when Ruth takes Naomi to God as her God. And in that moment, no doubt that seems costly. No returning to her people, the potential loss of the prospect of remarriage, maybe being childless widow for the remainder of her life. Society told her that husband and childbearing were her identity. Now that could all be lost. Society tells us that we're defined by our work, that we're defined by our families or by our materials or our hobbies or our health. Society tells us that we're defined by these things, but when you count the cost, you recognize that all of those things can be stripped away and there are no, there are no way promised to you. That seems like a big cost, but as time goes on, those things seem to fade. They will. They'll fade. Because of the infinite value of Christ, it's so vast. Everything else pales in comparison. So, in our remaining time, that's kind of a lead into this text. And we won't take a lot of time to think about this idea. But in verse 1, we see that one word is used that I want to key on this morning. In verse 1, chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And that one word there, that this whole thing turns out, act one to act two, the transition happens here, and it hinges on this word, worthy. It hinges on this word, worthy. We see in chapter two, we're introduced to this man named Boaz. We're interested, or we're introduced to this man named Boaz a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. And not only are we introduced to Boaz, but we're given this descriptor, and the remainder of the chapter is showing us how he lives up to this descriptor. The author doesn't just tell us, the author just doesn't give us, like, he's a worthy guy, but then he goes to great lengths to demonstrate to us, to tell us why or how he is worthy. Look at verses 8 and 9. If you bounce down the page. Verses 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not glean from any other field or leave this one, but keep, keep close to my young women, 
Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. Go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessel and drink what the young men have drawn. Boaz promises her several things here. Three that stick out immediately. He promises her that she will have all that she needs if she stays in his field. He promises her that she will be protected. And he promises her that she will be refreshed when she goes tired or thirsty. And he makes good on all of it. We see in the remainder of the chapter that he makes good on all of that. He promises her those basic things, but not only does he provide her with the basics, but he gives her a place of prominence, almost over and above. Look at verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. She had some left over. She sits beside the reapers. This is a step up. This is a step up. Ruth is a Moabite. She is a foreigner by her own admission in this text. She says, I am a foreigner. She must wait for permission to glean. We see that in verse 7. She's waiting for, for, for permission to glean. And she goes from having to be persistent in her gleaning to eating with people out of her societal league. So when we see that, when we see those promises, and then we see that she's given a place of prominence that's even over and above what she societally deserves, our mind should go to one place, and that's to Christ Jesus. Our mind should go to Jesus. Jesus says, as the, as the one who is the source of all things for us, as the one who is the source of all things, he, he invites us to glean in his field and tells us not to go elsewhere. He tells us that true rest is found nowhere but him. He is the source of our satisfaction, and the only true satisfaction and joy we can ever experience is in him. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. So we're going to make three statements here, just three quick statements that are going to grant us a depth of understanding of how Jesus is, is pointed to by Boaz, how Boaz points to Jesus in this text. And just as Jesus promised Ruth that she would have all she needs if she stays in this field, Jesus is the yes to the promise of all things. He's the ultimate display of God's generosity to us. There's a verse that we quote regularly. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but delivered us up or delivered him up over for us how will he not also with him freely give us all things? In Christ all things are ours. Small piddly things surround us now. They make molecules look like mountains but in eternity we will rule with Christ over all things and those things are eternal. So that's the first thing. Just as po Boaz promised Ruth that she would have all she needs if she stays in this field, Jesus is the yes to the promise of all things. He is the ultimate display of God's generosity to us. Second thing is this. Just as Boaz promised that Ruth would be protected, Jesus promises us unparalleled security. I want to stick on this one for just a minute. John 10, 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice. This is Jesus speaking. My, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and, I will and they will follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus is sheep. If you are in Christ, Jesus is sheep. You are a sheep of the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. They will never perish. 
I want to ask you the question, can your career offer you security like this? How, how about your self-esteem? How about your retirement account? They, those things can try, but they will inevitably fail. They are temporary. The, the security that Jesus offers us is eternal. But as you know, these things leave us anxious. These things leave us anxious and they, because they can be stripped from us. And we all know that. We all know that they can be stripped of. And friends, seek excellence in your career. But steward your resources well. Understand that your identity is built in Christ. But never slip into the mindset that these things can promise you. That they can promise you the security that Jesus can promise you. What an incredible illusion the world has constructed. I'm going to make a statement here. I make a lot of statements. I'm going to make a statement here. One of, I think, Satan's most effective schemes in the world, in our world, in our culture, in 2018, is the illusion of security that the world has built up around us. We have things like security systems. We have things like emergency funds and retirement accounts and insurance. All of those things. Now, if you're an insurance agent, I'm not trying to put you out of a job. But what I am saying is that each of these things has created the sense of false security that we can't actually find. We can't actually find security in those things because, again, they're temporary. And then, okay, so here's an example. I've watched so many so-called affluent Christians deny uh, young godly men their daughter's hand in marriage because he doesn't have enough in his bank account. And that's a tragedy. That's a tragedy. When my baby girls grow up, if that's my mindset, you have permission to hit me. And all that's saying is I don't trust God. I don't trust God with my family. Does the bank account make my baby girls impervious to on-the-job accidents or to cancer? No, a thousand times no, it doesn't. And I'll gladly hand my daughters over to godly men who find their security in the only one who can promise his sheep that they will never perish, whether he has $5 or $5 million in his bank account. Jesus offers security that nothing else can. And just as Boaz promised that Ruth would be refreshed when she grew tired and thirsty, Jesus promises us that he will refresh us when we grow weary and that we will be made new. John 4.14 says this, Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. This is true refreshment, friends. This is true refreshment. Not a night in watching Netflix, not a cool glass of lemonade on a hot day, not a vacation. We need to be refreshed from broken, dried out, dead, sin-soaked beings. We need to be refreshed to complete, full of life, restored to our original state, fighting sin. That's coming to it. It is only Jesus who can truly refresh us. Boaz was worthy. He offered Ruth these things. He could promise them to her. Jesus is the worthiest. He offers these things to everyone. So in conclusion this morning, we're, we're going to keep working out this idea for a few weeks. So I hope you continue to join us through as we continue to work 
out these ideas, especially the idea of favor that we see come up time and time again here. Ruth's position as the recipient of a worthy man's favor. So I'm going to make a statement here that will be important moving forward. We are welcomed into God's family through God's favor displayed in a worthy man. We see that pictured in Boaz, and we see it ultimately pictured in Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. We are welcomed into God's family through God's favor displayed in a worthy man. Ruth was welcomed into God's family through Boaz. Verse 12, it says, She, kept, she had come to take refuge under the wings of God. All the benefits were offered to her despite being a foreigner. She's not turned away. Boaz welcomes her. He sees this is true of her, and his favor was upon her. In the same way, we are, we are welcomed into God's family through the favor, or shown God's favor through Christ. He is our access into the people of God, into eternal life. We are the people of God. We are the church. All believers for all of time are welcomed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And those who have been welcomed organize together like we do this morning. We organize together like we do this morning. Those people who have been welcomed into God's family organize together in order to proclaim the truth of who God is and what he's done for us in Christ Jesus to our community. The recognition that God has shown us immense favor in Christ. And we long to exalt him as worthy of all. And those who have received God's favor in Christ, how then should we live? We ask this question. How then should we live? We should live in harmony with one another as brothers and sisters of Christ. Those who are on our right and our left this morning have been also been shown God's favor. And that leads to harmony among God's people. So we need to ask ourselves the question. We need to continue to ask ourselves. We ask this regularly, but ask ourselves this question. Am I living in harmony with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Do I acknowledge that the favor that God has shown them in Christ and celebrate God's generosity, His hand of protection and His restorative work in His or her life, or do I demand that they earn my favor based on my standards? We live in a world where people gripe about the local church a lot, where they gripe about, they messed this up, or they did this thing wrong or right. One that indicates a a problem in our understanding of what the local church is, such as an organization to punch our card in. You know when you get the, never mind, like a reward program? No, it's not that. It's not that. It's not a social club. Friends, the church is the bride of Christ. We're an expression of that in Jamestown, North Dakota. And if you talked about my wife the way that some of you talk about the bride of Christ, I would return the favor and hit you back. Like I said earlier, no, never mind. You, you know what I'm saying. Right? Yeah? Okay. Maybe not. What I'm saying is don't talk about Jesus' bride. Like, don't gripe. I understand that the church hurts us and harms us, the people in the four walls, but we must ask the question of ourselves. Am I honoring others? Am I demonstrating that, that they have received the favor of, of God displayed to them in Christ Jesus? We show, our, we show our unbelieving friends and our coworkers and our neighbors that God's favor is not earned, but it comes to the one who is worthy, Jesus Christ. And our lives need to be a constant reflection that Jesus is worthy of honor and praise. We can't do that if we're Sunday morning only Christians. We can't do that if we blow off Sunday mornings. We can't do that if we isolate ourselves. 
We can't do that if we give Jesus lip service only once in a while. We can't do that if we give Jesus 30 seconds of thought throughout our week. So as we close this morning, just take your Bible and turn to the back. We're in the front. Go to the back. Go to Revelation chapter 5. The Apostle John here sees this incredible scene unfolding before him. This incredible scene unfolding before him. Let me read just the first five verses. Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated at the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one, no one was found and worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. This is a portrait of the one who is worthy. This is a portrait of Jesus Christ. Weep no more. Behold, look to the one who is worthy. There is none worthy except Christ Jesus. Bounce down to verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people, or you ransomed people for God. And every tribe and language and people and nation, and every and you have made them a kingdom and a priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And then look down to verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Jesus has handed this scroll. He said, who, who is worthy to open the scroll? And in it, contents of the scroll are the inheritance that only he can read. His inheritance is what we see in verse 12. Power and wisdom and wealth and might and honor and glory and blessing. This one, Jesus Christ, friends, he can satisfy you fully. Just as Ruth was satisfied, just as Ruth was welcomed to the people of God by a worthy man, by Boaz, so we, as God's people, are welcomed in to the family of God by Christ Jesus. He can satisfy us fully. He can secure us for eternity. He can refresh us once for all. He is, he is God's unmerited favor shown to us. He is worthy. Let's pray.